This is uh, today they're going to be picking the bracket for the NCAA basketball tournament. There was a time in my life when I was obsessed by basketball, specifically college basketball. So this time of year is, to some degree, it's kind of fun to fun to watch and pick the different college teams. But when I was a seventh and eighth grader, I was a starting point basketball guard in my, I, I played for a Catholic school team. We'd play city teams in Cleveland, and we were very good. I was just a point guard. I would dish it off. We had some tall guys. And so I had a lot of dreams and aspirations of being a college basketball player. Even though I was really short, I had big dreams. I had big dreams. Remember, I don't know if you remember, uh, do you remember a player by the name of Kelly Trapuca? Played for Notre Dame. Lee, do you remember, Kelly, remember Kelly Trapuca? Probably you looked up to him. Kelly, he played for Notre Dame, fighting Irish. And I, I remember I, what I would do is I would turn on the TV, watch the Fighting Irish play basketball, and then when it was a commercial, I'd run outside really quick and shoot three long shots, run in before the game came back on. Drove my mom crazy, but I had dreams and aspirations. My ninth grade year, it would be my freshman year in basketball, I went to a public school, and I still was a starting point guard for our basketball team. I was still kind of short, but I still was a good, good ball handler, and I could pass it a lot. There was a guy underneath me on the B team named John Schramm. John Schramm was probably one of my best friends, and he loved basketball. But he was on the B team, our freshman year was on the A team. We'd play basketball a lot. I can remember at the very end of our freshman basketball season, the head coach came in, sat down with everybody in the team, and he said, not many of you are going to play varsity. Probably half of the team is going to get cut. And he said, so from this time... Until next year, I want to see some of you come to our camps, enroll in some private basketball camps in local colleges. I want you to practice your dribbling skills, shooting skills, so hopefully by the time you're a sophomore, you will be better and you'll have a chance as a junior and senior to make the varsity team. We had a big school, so really it was a coveted spot to make the basketball team. I remember from the time of my freshman year to my sophomore year, John Schramm would call me almost every day to go play basketball. I didn't like basketball that much, I realized. I didn't really go. He'd go to the public basketball courts and play the local kids. He would go to the school-sponsored uh, camps that they had for dribbling and shooting. And he actually went to two colleges to play weekend basketball college camps. I basically went to the pool. I went to the lake a lot, swam with my dog out at Lake Erie, and I played a lot of baseball. So through that whole season, from the freshman year to sophomore year, we joined the JV team. I made the JV team, but I was not a starter. John was. Not only was I not a starter, I rarely played. I got to play when they would have maybe two minutes left and winning by 40 points. My best friend and I, John LeMay, he, too, was, we'd sit at the end of the bench. And I at that time, we'd listen to the Doors. They're a, they're a rock and roll group. And they had this song called Riders of the Storm. And we turned the song into Riders on the Pine. And because we sat on the pine, one of our favorite verses, Riders on the Pine, we want to go in, but the coach wants to win. Riders on the Pine. We never went in. We actually, this is so stupid. We actually... They didn't have enough uniforms, so they gave us like the 1970s 
uniforms when we were in the 80s, and they, were, they really rode you high, and like, it's really embarrassing. So, needless to say, from my freshman year to my sophomore year, I really didn't deserve it. I, in the meantime, from my freshman year to sophomore year, I did nothing to deserve a spot. It's funny, when I played, I'd get mad. Why doesn't a coach play me more? And I didn't like the varsity coach because he rarely talked to me. I thought he was mean. I thought he was a crabby old coach. And one time I talked to my friend Shram. He said, no, he's actually a really nice guy, but Chris, you don't practice. You don't practice. Like, yeah, you're right. You're right. In the meantime, I didn't do what it takes to get better. To a degree, we are living in the meantime right now. This period of life, I would consider from the time Jesus left the earth to the time he came back, we have something to be doing. We should be living with purpose because the meantime really matters. That's what this whole passage is about. I want you to go to Luke 19, starting in verse 11. The title is, In the Meantime. And the, the subtitle is, Waiting for the Reckoning. What is the reckoning? When all of our accounts are going to be called. And it gets, the very end of this passage is really terrifying if you read it in the emphasis Christ is saying. So let's start in verse 11, and we're going to read through verse 27. As they heard these things, that's the disciples, Jesus proceeded to tell them a parable because he was near to Jerusalem, meaning he was near to the place where he was going to die. And because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a noble man went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas. A mina is three months' wages. It's three months' wages. So it says he gave them ten minas. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's your mina. I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, 
taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Well, that's, that's a nice way to end a parable, Jesus. Slaughter them. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes we really don't see Jesus as he is. He's very fierce. And what this is about is this is about the reckoning. It's about the day that he's going to come back and call us to account. But the point of it is, what are you going to do in the meantime? You see, this begins in verse 11. And he begins this parable because in their heart, he knows the disciples' heart, the, the disciples thought the kingdom was going to arrive immediately, meaning when Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he was probably going there to set up his throne and take over. They didn't know he was going to die. And so Jesus is warning them. He's going to give them a story. He's going to use, uh, the way commentators would say it, there was a current known experience going on. You've probably heard of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was the king of Judea. He died. He had three sons. And so he sent one of his sons, wanted to have that kingship, but he had to go to Rome to go get it. And then he'd come back and take over. So it's the idea is like this. Here's the story. So you have down there Judea and then Jerusalem. Imagine there is a nobleman. That's how Jesus puts it. So this nobleman is a man of honor. He's a man of wealth. He's a man of prestige. And he wants to get basically the kingship, the right to be king of the area. So he travels all the way to Rome, which is a long distance. And then in order to come back, he's got to travel all the way back around. So he's got a circuitous, circuitous. I've got a cold. It's hard to say circuitous when you have a cold. So the point is, when he's gone, he's going to leave his servants there to maintain his foothold in that territory, to expand his ownership his prestige, his influence. And the way he pushes his influence is he gives them minas. He gives them three months' pay, ten guys, and he says, here's what I want you to do. Take my money and expand my money. So Jesus says, this is really a parable about him. What in the world does that mean? I want you to go to Acts chapter 2. This is amazing. This is one of these... Acts chapter 2 is one of these spiritual insights into the workings of God that it's a privilege to know. It's a beautiful passage. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. This is actually Peter's very first sermon that he ever gave. And he's talking about how Jesus died in verse 31. And he rose again. And verse 32 is going to explain what happens. Watch closely how it fits to this story. Because Jesus is the nobleman. 
Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. So he's talking about the resurrection. Jesus came to the cross, died, was buried three days, and then he rose up. So he was walking. He was alive. That is the centerpiece of our faith. Now keep reading. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, let's stop, what does that mean? Jesus, after he was risen from the dead, he walked on the earth 50 days. And then he ascended into heaven. In the Mount of Olives, he ascended into heaven. He went straight up into the heavens, and he went right to the right hand of the Father. It's sort of like the nobleman who has left the country to go to Rome. Jesus left the earth to go for one purpose. Look at why he went to heaven. He received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit. What is that? That is. In the Old Testament, remember when King David was recognized as king, they anointed him with oil. It's called the anointed one or the Messiah. The recognized representative or agent of God. He received the anointing. What this is saying is when Jesus went up to heaven, he received the Holy Spirit, the real anointing, the coronation of the king. So Jesus died, rose again, ascended into heaven, went to the right hand, and was coronated. That is when he became the ruler of the earth. Look what's happening in the meantime. Do you see him yet? I don't see him. Where is he? Keep reading. It says, In receiving from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So what he did is he poured out his holy, the Holy Spirit that coronated him, crowned him. He has given it to his servants to use until he comes. Kind of like the ten minas, but this is a much more precious gift than just money. It's the Spirit of God is given to us as a deposit, according to Ephesians, guaranteeing our inheritance. However, the Holy Spirit is also the instrument of work that we are to invest in the world and use. See him work through our lives. So the story that they understood of the guy going to Rome to get the kingship is actually an analogous story to what Jesus did. So we are living in the meantime. If we go back to Luke, we are living in chapter 13. I mean, verse 13 of chapter 19. Look at verse 13. This is where we are in present day. So Luke 19.13, Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, Engage in business until I come. So you could say it like this, Calling his servants, Jesus gave them the Holy Spirit and said, Engage in business until I come. If you don't read that, read, believe that, read Acts 1.8. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit and power to go make disciples. It's our job. Here's the question. What does he mean in the ESV, engage in business? Does this mean our job is to invest and make more money for God? Is it about maintaining a financial portfolio for God? Is that what he's saying? Because in here, these guys invested money. They got great return. One guy got Ten times a return, he got ten cities. One guy got five times a return. One guy didn't invest it. And God said, at least you could have put it in a bank. Is that what he's talking about? Do we need to take more Dave Ramsey courses 
So we will be better financially. I think we should be better financially, but is that our goal, to be better financially? There's a problem. Go to Luke chapter 12. Luke chapter 12, if that's our job, Luke chapter 12 seems almost contradictory. Verse 32. So verse 32 says, Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So he's talking about you are the servants, you are his flock, he's going to give you his kingdom. So, because he's going to give you his kingdom, sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourself with money bags, do not grow old, with a treasure in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys, for where your treasure... He's telling you to get rid of your money. Help the poor with your money. Don't, you know, don't hoard it. Don't get an investment down here. Put it in the heavens, meaning give it to others, so it will be stored for you in heaven. So is he telling us to maintain a good financial portfolio? So what is this? What does it mean to invest in the kingdom? I think it's clear. I think it's talking about faithfulness. You are given, well, let me show you. Go to 1 Timothy 6.20. This is what you're given, 1 Timothy 6.20. And actually, let's begin in verse 17, because it's going right along the same line with money. 1 Timothy 6.17. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That means don't think you're something because you have a big bank account. Don't think you're better than other people because your salary is higher. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, so don't place your hopes on your 401k. Don't be unwise, but don't place your hopes there. But place your hopes on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So the rich in all of us are to do good. What are we to do good in? Be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. So in other words, use your money to invest in the lives of other people. Why? So that you can take hold on what really matters, which is the life in Christ, the spiritual life. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid irrelevant babbling and contradictions, of which is falsely called knowledge. So he's basically saying, guard the deposit, deposit of the Holy Spirit, which is given to you by being faithful. Go to 1 Corinthians 4. I know I'm having you turn to a lot, but you need to understand this. 1 Corinthians 4. This is one of my favorite passages about how we're to view ourselves. 1 Corinthians 4.1, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. Remember the parable that he left servants of the nobleman? We are servants of Christ, left down here to do his work while he's gone. And we're stewards of the mysteries of God. We know the deep things of God. We've been given an incredible treasure 
We know this stuff. Not everybody does. And if you know this stuff, you have a responsibility to steward it well. So verse 2, Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. Another word for that is faithful. So our job is to take what God has given to us and be faithful. We are to be faithful with our money. We are to be faithful with our talents. We are to be faithful with our time. But we are also to be faithful with the spiritual giftedness that God has given us. We are to be faithful people. And I think if we go back to Luke 19, I want to show you this phrase again. Luke 19, 13, he says to his servants, he gave them ten minas, he gives to us his Holy Spirit, he gave to his servants ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business till I come. I love how the King James puts it, it says, occupy until I come. Occupy. Occupy means he has sent you here on this earth, to influence the world where you are at, to spread his knowledge, and to increase his glory in the lives of people you touch. Your job, wherever you are placed, is to occupy and be faithful until he comes. That's your job. It's it's interesting, in Jeremiah 29, he's talking about these exiles, and the exiles... They leave Jerusalem and they go to Babylon. He says, live there. Live among the people. Pray for the city and increase. And we should. But we should do more than increase. We should influence the world around us. We are salt and light. Or are we? Are you different than your neighbor? Are you different than your coworkers? Do people know it? You're supposed to be. We are to do more than just increase. We are to influence. So how do we occupy? I'm going to give you three principles of occupation. Two are positive, one is negative, based on Luke 19. So the first one we find because God was really pleased with two people. He was pleased with the people that invested their minas and they received a reward or a return. One received a tenfold return. One received a fivefold return. And so the first thing we can say is this. Simply make the most of your opportunities to put your talents at work. Put your talents to work. Listen to Matthew 5, 16. And this goes right along with the salt and light, but listen closely to it. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. So it says here, you are supposed to shine, invest yourself so people notice you and give glory to God. We are to make the most of our opportunities to shine, to put your talents to work. 
Second thing we can learn from Luke 19 is this. The guy who invested 10, or 1 and got 10, he's going to receive 10 cities. The guy who invested 5, or 1 and got 5, he's going to receive 5 cities. And he's doing it for the master's name, but he, he gets a reward. So you can say the goal is, of, is the growth of God's realm. But you know what? We will be rewarded and trust him for rewards. There's a question, and it goes like this. Do you think there's going to be different levels in heaven? Do you think some people are going to have basically a higher blessing in heaven? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. And it's all dependent on how you behave in the meantime. One writer puts it like this. He said, if we are vessels, some people are going to be like a shot glass, while other people are going to be like a swimming pool. They're going to receive fullness. They're going to be filled to the full, but some are going to have a greater capacity to experience his joy. But it will keep growing in heaven. However, you're going to receive a greater reward for how you behave in the meantime. That's what this is all about. And I think the kingdom, he's saying, you're going to rule ten cities? That's mind-blowing if you think about it. We are going to rule on this earth. We're going to rule here. We are going to be judging angels. Some people even believe we are going to be, in a sense, testifying against Satan. It's really mind-blowing. You've probably heard me say this. I'm already claiming my dibs on New Zealand. I want to rule New Zealand, the path of Mordor. Because there will be a lot of people going, and I'm going to charge taxes, and I'm going to make a lot of money in heaven. No, uh, probably that <laughs> I just lost it. But this is really strange stuff. So as you guys sit there, really, like to me, sometimes... When we, when we read the Bible, we are walking this thin line of sanity to insanity. We believe insane things. So I'm believing Murray Potts and Tim are, are probably, in, they are going to be glorious men who are going to have, I think, wide influence. But we just see each other in the flannel shirt we wore today, or the you know, the winter coat, kind of drab people, most of us. We're going to be glorious beings. But it takes faith. Faith means, do I believe this word? Do I trust it? And it depends on how you live in the meantime. How are you living? It's kind of like, I, you know what, I like basketball, but I really didn't. And so when the, when the second year, my sophomore year, came up for the basketball season, I wasn't ready. But I thought I was. Wait till Christ comes. Third thing is basically this. Fear leads to wasted opportunities, which leads to a loss of rewards. Look at verse 20 and 21. Then another came saying, Lord, here's your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. I was afraid of you because you're a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to you, I'll condemn you with your own words. What's going on? This guy, this servant, did not invest himself 
because he, he's scared of God. To me, this is legalism. Legalism is when I do things so God won't get mad at me. So I wear ties. I'm kind of, I'm, I'm pure. It's all about me. I really don't reach out because I don't want to be soiled by the world. So I don't really invest in the world because I'm going to be perfect in and of myself in my little box. I'm going to sing only the songs I know God likes because I'm scared of them. And so really I'm not investing. But boy, am I pure. Is that what we're called to? We are called to expand his kingdom, to try, to try something, to be different than the world. As somebody said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. Not a man just trying to, you know, make sure everybody thinks I'm doing the right thing. Pastor Chris wore a tie today, a little loud. Little loud tie, but he, he wore one. See, he's a good man. That's just ridiculous. Why do I wear a tie? Because I'm scared of people. We live for him and his glory to go out to the world to shine. Fear holds people back. Fear wastes opportunities. Here's a question for you. Because this guy didn't deposit his money, you know, the landowner was like, all you had to do is just invest it in the bank. Just do something. But because he didn't, he's going to take what that man had and give it to those who he can trust. That's just a simple principle. How much opportunity do we waste by just playing? How much of the meantime is just playing? How many shows have you seen in your life? How many trips on vacation have you done? Not that they're bad. I'm not saying they're bad. We need Sabbath. We need a time to recapture. But, but do, are we here to just Sabbath? To just indulge? Or is the king sent us here and give us a deposit of the Holy Spirit so we can occupy until he comes? That's a big question. And I, you know, I'm not saying it out of guilt or fear. I'm saying it out of honesty. Are we occupying? I want to just offer a strategy for occupation. I just want to get really practical here. I'm just going to give you my take practically on occupation. When we talk about occupation, a word we use for that is evangelism. I want you to go to 1 Thessalonians 1.8. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.8. Look at the example of the Thessalonians. Paul wrote to this church. It's a city called Thessalonica. And they set up a church there. And Paul's writing a letter. And look what he says to him in verse 8. He says... Not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we not, need not say anything. He's so impressed by the people in Thessal Thessalonica because their faith has been redounding everywhere it goes. Everybody hears it, and Paul even heard it. He said, man, we don't even need to tell you. You guys are taking this off. That's our job. And evangelism is the spreading of the good news. That's what evangelism means. 
The gospel is the good news of Christ, that he died, he rose again, and faith in him gives us forgiveness and a new life. And we are to spread that. And the Holy Spirit, the deposit that's given to us, is the power that gives us the ability to spread that. Because the Holy Spirit, when, it, when through our words, it will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The Holy Spirit's amazing. He's a great gift. So evangelism, when you hear that word evangelism, I think we think of one thing, the classical approach to evangelism. And it's true, but I think this is the only way we see it. And what the classical approach is, is direct witnessing. I go door to door on Saturday morning, or I confront somebody on the side of the road and I say, hey, you heard of the four spiritual laws? We try to debate them. And really, this was the way I was raised. I went to Moody Bible Institute. I remember I had a professor that said, did you know D.L. Moody every day of his life witnessed to somebody and led one person to Christ every day of his life? I'm like, man, that's incredible. And he told the story. D.L. Moody one time went to his bedroom. It's like, I didn't lead anybody to Christ today. Went down on Michigan Avenue in Chicago and witnessed to the guy, and the guy got saved. I'm like, oh, I need to do that. So I lived, I have to tell you, I lived in guilt because I wasn't good at it. I remember one time, I, w I was going to go to bed, and I'm like, I didn't witness to anybody today. So I went to the local gas station. I grabbed a Three Musketeers chocolate bar, and I put it up there on the counter and said to the lady behind the counter, I said, have you ever heard of Jesus Christ? She said, huh? Did you know you're a sinner and you, you need Jesus in your life? She said, no, what I need is 75 cents for that Three Musketeer bar. Oh, okay, sorry about that. Have a good day. And I ran, I'm like, I feel so stupid. I'm so bad at evangelism. I'll never be good at this. I'll never be good at this. I had a brother who would sit on the corner of Cleveland and yell at people like he was really good at it. I'm not sure he ever led one soul to Christ. But man, he was good at it. He's kind of scary. My brother's a big dude, and he, man, he'd yell at people. Is that, what, is that what we're called to do? Some people are good at it, but I think this is the only version we see of it. Or we got to bring people to church, get that pastor who's the champion of evangelism, and get people saved. So we're hoping. Man, we're hoping on Sunday morning we have an altar call and people get saved because that's when people get saved. And I need that pastor to go to the hospital and get my daddy saved because he's dying. He needs. Is that really what... True evangelism is biblically, or have we kind of superimposed our 1910, 1920s, 1930 shoe salesman approach to evangelism? I think there's some of that there. It works, but it's not necessarily always effective or long-term effective. I'm going to propose four more options that I have seen time and time again be powerfully effective. This one I'm going to call is the providential method. And I'm going and I want to tell you these next four methods are no, this first one is relatively easy if you learn it. Each one is so much easier than a classical approach, but we don't think like this. We don't think to expand God's culture. The providential approach basically says God's always working around you, but do you look? Do you listen? I have on there a miner's pick. 
True evangelism is like mining to me. Every once in a while, you just keep sharing the gospel. You listen, and you, you, there's somebody that enters your life. They want to know the gospel. You give them the gospel. They get saved, and then they bring everybody else and their brother to, to Christ. It's unbelievable. This is one of the ways our church has expanded, I have to be honest with you. I won't tell you the stories because some, there's a lot of confidentiality there. But the providential approach is when you are with somebody, that, that's God's moment for you to listen to them and to care about them. Because people share things every day with you if you just listen. But we are too busy sharing our fish stories, how we're better. And we miss every opportunity. You've probably heard my cave analogy. People are like caves. They will invite you in. When they invite you in, they have a big room, and it's a safe room. And they'll talk about NASCAR and baseball and football. And they just share kind of not important things. If you listen and care, they will start inviting you in deeper to the cave. And then they'll invite you to places that are scary. But those scary places are where Jesus can offer mercy and grace. Too often we go into people's places and we say, I don't want to talk about baseball. It's so stupid. People just talk about sports. It's so silly. No, that's safe, not silly. And then when you don't one-up somebody, they're like, wow, that person listens to me. Hey, do you want to have, can I go to coffee with you? Yeah, what's up? Man, my. My mom left my dad. Really? You guys, you won't believe the opportunities. It's providential. God will set it up, but you have to listen. Second thing is, I'm going to call it natural. Just live like a Christian. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Just live unashamed. Jonathan Newton, is he here? Where is Jonathan? Is he here? He shared something in the gathering last night, which was exactly what I'm trying to say. Jonathan Newton works construction and he was when he's working construction he was just sometimes working construction can overwhelm you because the culture is so anti-christ vulgarity you understand and he said i'm being overwhelmed god will you just bring one person and there was a new plumbing team came in and one guy had a boom box and he was playing christian music and jonathan went up to that guy and he said he said he's a big african-american man he said man thanks for playing that and have the boldness to play and he goes Oh, man, I've been so down. I just prayed to God a couple minutes ago. He brings somebody encouraged me, some Christian to come in. And right after I got done praying, you walked in. And, and this, this guy had the guts to play his kind of music. Everybody picks their kind of music. This guy picked to play Christian. Are you, can you just talk about God every once in a while? If you believe in him, will you, is he your friend? Because you talk about your friend. Just live like a Christian. If you, I give three ways to live like a Christian. Really? Here it is. Number one, work hard. Number two, speak up when there's a conversation about Christian worldview issues. And number three, just stop complaining. Stop complaining. You will shine like the stars in the sky. Just be a Christian. Third thing is be intentional, focused and direct. Go to Isaiah chapter 50. This is, this is to me an amazing, amazing verse. Isaiah 50 verse 4. 
says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. And what this is talking about is God wants to give you insight into people who are broken, who are weary. And as he does, your job is to go after those weary people. Some people have convictions about abortion, so they join Alpha Women's Center. Some people have convictions about children at risk, so they join Kids Hope. Be intentional about reaching people that are broken. And intentionality is hard. But what it says is, what breaks your heart? Because I guarantee it breaks God's heart. And what can you do about it? Can you get people around you? What if there's somebody you know needs help in their house? Can you get about six, seven guys to help lay some drywall, put some drywall up or flooring just to help them? What breaks your heart? Probably breaks God's heart. Be intentional. And then the last one I just offer is this. Is do beautiful things. Make the world beautiful. One of our image-bearing capacities is we can create beauty just like God did. God created a beautiful world. He's given a lot of you gifts. Woodworking gifts. Drawing gifts. Musical gifts. Use those gifts. I was at a uh, church ministries conference, Ken, six years ago, and I went to a writer's seminar. And I want to write. I want to be a better writer. I'm not that good. I want to try and this guy, he stood up there and he said, what if, here's his question, what if Paul, because he didn't think he was a good writer, just said, I'm not going to write letters to the churches. We wouldn't have half the New Testament. Paul just decided to try. He decided to try. One of, I had a real burden for my sister Tammy. And she was not listening. I was trying to share the gospel with her, so I just decided to write my own parable. And I wrote this goofy little parable. It's about a 10-page parable. And I thought I'd write it really, because I knew she liked to read. And she called me immediately after I wrote it, and she said, I get it. I get it. I get what you're trying to tell me. It was an unbelievable moment in my life. Try, try using your incredible giftedness to wake people up to the beauty of God. You can do it. The problem is we don't think we're evangelists because we only see the classical approach. I'm not good at evangelism. I'm not. I'll never be good. Neither am I. I'm not. But that providential one, if you just watch, you won't believe it. But it's not easy if we go back to Luke 19. Jesus says something about the citizen. Look at verse 14 and 27, Luke 19, 14. But his citizens hated him. And in verse 27, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, people don't want God's reign. They just don't. So expect hostility. When you share the gospel, expect hostility. When you play maybe that song on the radio, expect hostility. When somebody says something rude about women and you say, quit talking about women like that, expect hostility. Expect it. Expect people laughing at you. 
expect people not understanding you. One of my best friends, Vinny, when I started going to Moody Bible Institute, he goes, what? What, what are you doing? Going to Moody? What? That's silly. I really haven't talked to him ever since. Expect hostility. Look at John. I'll, list, I'll read John 19, 15. Jesus says, John 19, 15, they cried out. This is when he's being crucified. Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. If the people don't want Christ as their king, don't, don't be surprised when they're hostile. People will be hostile. I want to I finish with this story. I wrote this about a year ago. If you guys ever read my blog, you might remember it, but I'm, not, I'm sure you don't. And it was about Todd DeKrager. I just had some thoughts about Todd DeKrager. He was one of our missionaries. He died a year ago. And as I was going back, I was just reading this, and it fits in perfect with what I'm trying to say. A man died last week. His name was Todd. He had a regular name. He was a regular guy. He just happened to be living in Togo, West Africa, and working as a physician's assistant, helping the African poor in a hospital called Hope. His death was shocking. His body shut down after battling with both malaria and typhoid fever. He left behind a wife and four boys. He was 46 years old. His wife believed his risk was worth it. I want to tell you also of the life of another man. I won't mention his name, but he also is young. But unlike Todd, he's very famous. He owns his own jet, owns a multi-million dollar house, and is admired by many. If he wants to meet his friends who live across the country for a day, he hops on his jet and he's able to hang out with them sipping drinks on a yacht. This man is, quote, living the life. And no one, no one is questioning if it's worth it. In fact, most people I know would sell all they have to be where this man is at. This is probably not the case when people look at Todd's life. I find people have more pity and offer a lot of patronizing sentiment. Wow, he gave his life for such a just cause. He clearly was sold out for Jesus. But what will become of his kids? Was Todd's life really worth it? Is sacrifice for Christ really necessary when I can have drinks on a yacht? I know that it's possible to have both, but the probability of having your cake and eating it too is very minimal. According to Matthew 6, either you serve God or money. I was thinking back on my own life. Every weekend, my family and I would have big family get-togethers. I had four sisters, a brother, a lot of um, a married couple, so a lot of in-laws. Um, we'd watch two or three movies, play cards, make family movies on our videotape recorder, and we'd laugh late into the night. When my dad lost his job, we all did reassessments of worth. Is life simply for hanging out with your family, laughing, watching movies, eating large meals, 
Or are we made for more than this? My dad decided to start reading his Bible. So did my mom. So did my brother. And after a while, so did I. During this time of questioning, I came across Revelations 3.16. Because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I wasn't much of a Bible scholar at the time, but I knew this verse was calling me out of complacency. It chilled me to my bone. I was a man of leisure, living for comfort with few, if any, convictions about anything of substance. This verse described my soul acutely. I was lukewarm, even worse. I was aimless. Meaning, worth, purpose, and even the answers to life after death started haunting me and the rest of my family. We began to hammer God with questions. We started placing more weight on our daily decisions because we knew we were responsible before an eternal God. Over time, we became members to a local church. We started loving our neighbor more than before, and as a result, we even felt called to serve people in very unique ways. For the next 12 years, both my mom and dad led Bible studies with BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. My brother became a missionary to the Indians in Bolivia. My sister Gina began working with prisoners in the L.A. jails. My sister Stephanie and Tam began giving and contributing in major ways to their local church. And God called me to a life of pastoring. We didn't do it to earn points or even impress God. We just wanted our lives to count. The only problem with these choices is that we no longer could make family movies or spend Saturday nights together watching old reruns like we used to. Was it worth it? I think so. But I am still not sure until I see God face to face. And in a way, I don't care because I really hated the feeling of being lukewarm. I like being hot. It helps me sleep better at night. And it's actually rewarding to see people completely change because I introduced them to a man named Jesus. It's amazing. I know this. Even though Todd died in relative obscurity, I mean, we rarely talk about him anymore. I don't think he's embarrassed before God at all. Nor do I think God is embarrassed by him. Listen to Hebrews eleven thirteen. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus, make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. To me, that is how worth is measured. Is God ashamed of me? The answer is no. My life has been really, really, really good. Let's pray.